I didn't have it plugged in all the way. It's the beard. It will never shave. All right. So you've been to a conference or um, maybe even a seminar and you get fired up. Has that ever happened to you? Just by show of hands. Have you ever been somewhere, maybe you even heard a sermon that just fires you up. You are on fire. You get in your car, you're driving, you're like, I'm going to do this thing. I'm excited. And then as, as the day progresses, you begin to wonder, what exactly am I supposed to do? Like, I'm, I'm excited, but I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Have you ever had that experience? If you read the book of Joshua, you would probably have something similar. And if it weren't for 23 and 24, I don't think we would have the, um, the plan. We wouldn't know what to do. So 23 and 24, I really feel like you get the similar experience with the book of Joshua. And then you, you're all pumped up. You say, okay, God is faithful. He's, got, he's conquered the land. We have been part of it. This is exciting. Everything's going great. I need to be faithful. And then you walk out the doors of the church and you begin to think, all right, I'm faithful. I'm going to be faithful. And then you say, well, how do I be faithful? And 23 and 24, Joshua paints a vivid picture of faithfulness. And there's three things that we need to know in order to be faithful. God's people have the assurance of help. That's the first thing. The second thing is the duty of obedience. And the third is a warning of certain judgment. 
And as we approach our text, verses 1 and 2 give us a setting. So, if you have your Bibles, Joshua 23, starting in verse 1. A long time after the Lord had given Israel rest from all the enemies around them, Joshua was old, advanced in age. We saw that language back in chapter 14, and Joshua was old and advanced in age. Verse 2, so Joshua summoned all Israel, including its elders, leaders, judges, and officers, and said to them, I am old, advanced in age. How would you like to start a message off like that? So we have rest in the land, essentially. The, uh, the main enemy forces have been broken. There's no major armies any longer, just some small insurgencies. And then Joshua was about to die. So he calls the heads of the households, he calls all of Israel, and he begins to give a speech. And this speech is to the leaders, because in 24 we see a speech to all of Israel. So 23, Joshua is talking primarily to the heads of homes, the tribal heads, and he begins to talk about these things. And I think as you and I both recognize, the last words of a great man are often attended to with great expectation. Um, and if you ever just get bored, just Google last words of great men. It's quite enlightening. It's quite interesting. There's some really silly stuff that is said. But Joshua has a purpose behind his final speeches. And I want you to consider the life of Israel. Joshua is the leader who gave them the victory. He is the George Washington that fought the battles. And we in America, when George Washington uh, finished his time as a general, we elected him to be president, right? Because he gave us victory, and now he's going to rule this thing. Joshua brings the victory from the Lord as a servant of the Lord, and now the trusted leader is going to die. There will be a transition. The thing is, there is no leader that's going to take its place because Yahweh, the Lord, is supposed to be the leader that the people of Israel follow. And we see the problem of that in Judges. They begin to follow whatever they want to follow. And so the first thing that we must know in order to be faithful is that God's people have the assurance of help. Verses 3 through 8 is the assurance of God's help. So Joshua's object in giving us this message is not to give you details of the invasion but he's, or to even write a simple history, but he wants to give the Israelites a basis for confidence, which is interesting because it's our basis as well. Romans 15, 14 says that for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through the perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And our passage this morning brings us hope. It encourages us. First, in verses 3 through 5, we have the Lord fights for us. Look at verse 3. So he begins with his speech. He says, I am old, advanced in age. And then he goes and he says, And you have seen for yourselves everything the Lord your God did to all these nations on your account. Because it was the Lord your God who was fighting for you. See, I have allotted these remaining nations to you as an inheritance for your tribes, including all the nations I have destroyed from the Jordan westward to the Mediterranean Sea. The Lord your God will force them back on your account and drive them out before you so that you can take possession of their land as the Lord your God promised you. So first we see that the Lord fights 
for you. It's the Lord that did this victory. In verse 3, he says, look at the past. Look at the nations that were already destroyed. These giants that you have faced, they have crumbled. The enemies that seem so strong, the Jericho walls that seem impregnable. We could not take it. He said, those are gone. And maybe his memory is going back to, to Joshua 5.14 where he was outside the camp and he saw a man, a warrior, standing in front of him. And he says, who are you? Are you for us or against us? And he says, I am, I am for neither. I am the angel of the, the, the Lord. Of, I'm, I'm the angel of the armies of the hosts of the Lord. He says, I am the, Lord, the Lord's right hand. I am. Maybe he is thinking about what was promised. In verse 4, it says, See, I have allotted these remaining nations to you as an inheritance for your tribe. The Lord has continually provided an inheritance for the people of Israel. Verse 5, he says, The Lord your God will force them back on your account and drive them out before you so that you can take possession of their land as the Lord your God promised you. Over and over again in our passage, you're going to see that Joshua is referring back to the promise. He says, look what the Lord has promised, look what the Lord has done, look what the Lord will do. And he says, this is what I want you to have in your mind. In order for you to be faithful, because the Lord is faithful, you need to have these things in your mind. And first is, the Lord will fight for you. You've got to look at the past. What has the Lord already done? What is the Lord currently doing? And what will the Lord do? What has he promised? And the second assurance is the need to be strong. You have to live on this assurance. So because God is faithful and he has been faithful, you need to live on that reality. Are you guys tracking with me? Are you guys make, is this making sense? Okay, good. So verse 6, it says, Be very strong and continue obeying all that is written in the book of the law of Moses so that you do not turn from it to the right or to the left. It will take strength. It is going to take everything you've got. It's going to take your effort in this fight. And, it's going to, and what do you have to do? What are you fighting? Well, you're fighting to observe the commands, and it will require spiritual strength and a resoluteness of mind. Verse 7 says, And so that you do not associate with these nations remaining among you, do not call on the names of their gods or make an oath to them. Do not serve them or bow in worship to them. Instead, be loyal to the Lord your God as you have been this day. It's going to take loyalty. So not only does it take a resoluteness in your soul, choose this day whom you will serve, Joshua tells us in the next chapter, but he says not only will it take a resoluteness of mind, I am going to serve my Lord. He says it's also going to take loyalty. And that means you need to avoid the temptation to join the locals that were not fully removed, either because of the agreements that were made or because of the failures to drive them out. No mixing with them. I mean, think about this. If you are an Israeli, you just inherited someone else's vine field, right? You have all the crops. You're looking at how they used to cultivate the land. And you're sitting there and their neighbors who you did not drive out, they're having a party. And you're like, man, I want to go to a party. So you go and you start visiting with them and they said, oh yeah, this is, a, this is a harvest party. We're celebrating the God of harvest. And you're like, oh, okay, well, I could probably fix that in my mind. I have my own God of harvest. I'm going to worship him. You guys worship them. 
And you begin to drink together, you begin to play together, and next thing you know, you are worshiping their God. And so we have this temptation to not be loyal. It's the same thing for us where our friends invite us to a party. And we're like, man, I like my friends. I want to go to the party. And as you're at the party, they begin to talk about things that are anathema to your Christian faith. And what happens? You become corrupted. The word in this passage here about loyalty, I think is actually better translated as cling. It's really a fascinating word in Hebrew, uh, but it's the same word that is used in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, where a man leaves his father and mother and bonds, cleaves, or clings to his wife. And so we see here almost this marital language, the, merit, the marital language of a covenantal relationship. If you cling to God as your betrothed, as your husband, you can have assurance that he will protect you. The basis of our assurance here in this passage is on the character of God. And as believers, as Christians, the basis of our, our protection is, in how we are, um, is on the character of who God is. So the question I want to ask you is how can you functionally have this assurance? Many of you in this room will claim to follow the, the Lord God. Many of you in this room say you love Jesus with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So what does it functionally look like where the rubber meets the road, right? I don't want to pump you up with this excitement about being faithful in the Lord and then not give you clear instructions, right? So we could say, first, we know that God fights for his people. And as Christians, those who are in union with Christ, or we could say those who are married to Christ, he is fighting for us. And if he is fighting for us, we also will use the weapons the Lord has provided. And we want to we do the Lord's work in the Lord's way, as Francis Schaeffer used to say. And if we do that, we are assured of victory. And it may not look like what we want, but it will always look like what he promises. God describes the church as the bride of Christ. In Revelation 21.2 and John 3.29, Ephesians 5.25, if the church is the bride of Christ and you belong to that bride, who is protecting you? The husband. We can rest assured that he will have holy jealousy for her. You know, I've had people badmouth me, and I have not even gotten upset or responded poorly. I just look at them and laugh, because I'm probably worse than you think that I am, right? But the reality is this. If someone badmouths my wife, I don't know what's going to come out of me, because I have a holy jealousy for her. And in the same way, we see that Christ will fight for his bride. And if we are in union with Christ, that means that we are uh, in marital union. If we are in covenantal union, if you belong to Christ, you are part of that bride. He cares for you. He protects you like he would his own bride. And so the second thing that we need to do is we need to fight from a position of assurance. We must put in the work. It takes clinging to the promises of God. It takes obedience to what Jesus commands us. It takes loyalty to the Lord. Are you loyal 
to your husband? Are you loyal to Christ? Are you pursuing other gods? Are you pursuing pleasure other than the satisfying pleasure of Christ? It means obedience. And so the second thing that you need to know is the duty of obedience. Verses 9 through 13 says that the faithful must be obedient. And this is gospel-empowered obedience that flows from God's faithfulness. And this, in cha- this entire chapter flows from the previous two, which are pointing to God's faithfulness. So let's look at verses 9 through 10. It says, The Lord has driven out great and powerful nations before you, and no one is able to stand against you to this day. One of you routed a thousand. How do you like them odds? Because the Lord your God was fighting for you as he promised. I think it would be remiss if we didn't go back and say, well, where did he promise this? In Leviticus 26, 1 through 8, you know that chapter that you, all, you always get bogged down in, in your Bible reading plans? Man, there's so much richness and promise there. It is such a fascinating passage. So Leviticus 26, 1 through 8, it says, You shall not make for yourselves idols, nor shall you set up for yourselves a graven image or a sacred pillar, nor shall you place a carved stone in your hand to bow down to it, for I am Yahweh your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and fear my sanctuary. I am Yahweh. I am the self-existent God, as um, Kevin said in his reading. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to do them, now this is what he does. Then I shall give you rains in their season, so that the land will give forth its produce, and the trees of the field will give forth their fruit. Indeed, your threshing will last for you until grape gathering. Gathering will last until sowing time. You're not going to be hungry. You will thus eat your food to the full and live securely in the land. Verse 6, I shall also give you peace in the land, so that you may lay down with no one making you tremble. I shall also eliminate wild beasts from the land, and no sword will pass through your land. Verse 7, but you will pursue your enemies, and they will fall before you by the sword. And five of you will pursue 100, and 100 of you will pursue 10,000, and your enemies will fall before you by the sword. The fulfillment of the promise that was here in Leviticus is now being accomplished in Joshua. And the obedience is what produces the victory. The obedience produces the victory. Our goal is faithfulness or obedience. He provides the victory. How often do we get that twisted when it comes to fighting sin in our lives? We think that we should be able to overcome sin in our life because of how good we are or because of how powerful we fight. The reality is this, as long as we are obedient, as long as we are faithful, it is the Lord that provides the victory in his timing, not us that accomplishes the victory with our own strength. So don't get this twisted. Don't fall into that trap because Satan loves nothing more than to convince you that you can do it on your own. And then when you can't do it on your own, what does he do? He brings the charges against you and says, you are so weak and pathetic. The whisper of the serpent. So the next thing we need to recognize in the duty of obedience is that we must diligently walk how walk. We must diligently watch how we walk. Look at verse eleven. 
I don't know about you, but this chapter is so powerful. It's so exciting. Verse 11, so diligently watch yourselves. Love the Lord your God. My goodness. How do we walk? By love. Love the Lord your God. We must love. Now, I like how the Legacy Standard Bible words it. It says this, so keep your souls very carefully to love Yahweh your God. Keep your souls very carefully to love Yahweh your God. Well, what must we be careful about? Chapter or Verse 12 tells us, and I'm going to read from the LSB again because I just like how it matches with what we've been studying. For if you ever turn back and cling to the rest of these nations, those which remain among you and intermarry with them so that you will go along with them and they with you. Man, doesn't that flow so well from verse 8? Verse 8, cling to Yahweh or cling to the nations. Choose this day who you will serve. Will you be married to God or will you commit adultery with the nations? That's the language here. Will you, be, will you commit infidelity or will you be married? Very vivid covenantal language. And if you want more, go to Hosea, all right, when it talks about this language. And I think the same question should be asked of you today. Pay attention to this because this is important for you. What are you clinging to? What are you clinging to? If we cling to our idols or our sins, they will cling to us like stink or like a bear trap. Proverbs 29.6 says, An evil person is caught by sin, but the righteous one sings and rejoices. If you find yourself not singing or rejoicing, check to see if you're in a trap. Check to see if you stepped in a bear trap. Check to see if you stepped in something. Our sins will dry rot us. How many of you have experienced dry rot either at a house or a piece of wood? What happens to that, dry, to that piece of wood as the dry rot sets in? More and more it becomes corrupted. It's like cancer. It's like cancer to wood. And even if you remove everything else, that dry rot will continue until you cut all the rot out of it. And that's what sin does to us. A godly man or woman will do anything to keep from sin. The early Christians would rather be eaten by lions externally than be consumed by their own sin within. The wise person would rather their jacket torn then their skin be cut. So a godly person would rather endure outward suffering rather than have their consciences cut. We must turn from those things that so easily entangle us that take the joy that we have with the Lord. And we need to cling to Christ. So how do we do that? Right? So once again, I don't want to pump you up and you're just like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fight sin. I'm going to cast away the things that so easily entangle. I'm going to make this happen. Well, good thing the Bible tells us. Colossians 3, 1 through 5 says, So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above. If you are in union with Christ, seek Him. If the Lord has changed your heart, given you a new appetite, a new desire, feed that desire. Get more of Christ. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, 
What is it there for? Put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. Put it to death. I like how the King James says mortify. Right? We vivify our life with the Lord and we mortify the things of the flesh. Put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed. And then my translation, which is all of these, is idolatry. All these, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, that's all idolatry. Those are idols. Those are false gods that you can worship. So if, if that isn't enough, if that warning that we just finished with isn't enough, Joshua provides a further warning to us. In order to be faithful, you must know the warning of certain judgment. Verse 14. I am now going the way of the whole earth, and you know with all your heart and all your soul that none of the good promises the Lord your God made to you has failed. Everything was fulfilled for you. Not one promise has failed. Since every good thing the Lord your God promised you has come about, so he will bring on you every bad thing until he has annihilated you from his good land the Lord your God has given you. If you break the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow and worship to them, the Lord's anger will burn against you, and you will quickly disappear from this good land he has given you. The warning has now escalated. Each of these sections that we have read contains a many, many warning, and finally he hits us with the sledgehammer, right? It's kind of like with your children. You're like, if you continue down this path, it's not going to go well for you. After 15 times, finally you say, okay, it's not going well for you, right? And then the discipline happens. God is faithful in verse 14. Nothing he has promised has failed to be accomplished. Focus in on this word with me, this word know in 14. He says, and you know with all your heart. That Hebrew word yada, it, it carries the intimate or experiential knowledge. It's often used to reflect what a man and a woman do in their bedroom, right? They know each other personally, experientially. Right? They don't just know about, they know because they've experienced it. And the question you need to ask yourself is, do I know this God? Have I experienced his saving power in my life? If I know that, I know that his promises for me will never fail. Joshua is dying. He wants his people to know with their whole beings that the Lord God makes promises and his promises do not fail. The one thing that Joshua is hoping on is that if they, when he dies, his people will know the living God. If they know the living God, they're not going to piddle around and peddle around with these false idols. They're not going to fill their minds with the things of the world because they're going to be so in love with their God. They're going to cling to God. When in times of doubt, we need to cling to the truth that God's word has never failed. When you are struggling with whatever it is that you're going through, whether it be questions of finances, whether it be social influences, whether it be conflict in your family, whether it be wondering if you're going to be able to afford eggs next week, any of these things, you need to recognize that it's God's word will never fail. And all the promises of God, they, they contain warnings. Every promise of God that we see in, in the scriptures, they contain a warning. 
And this is important for us that we do not move too quickly past it. Things do not go well for those living in rebellion against the living God. Deuteronomy 28.15 says, But it will be if you do not listen to the voice of Yahweh your God to keep and to do all his commandments and his statutes which, with which I am commanding you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. The Lord will allow some of these curses to fall on you in order to push you back to him. Sometimes I allow my children to do silly things in order to teach them that dad was right. And the Lord does that for us. The uncomfortable truth that Joshua needs us to grasp is that with these wonderful promises of God, there are also very strict warnings. For Israel, the warnings did not keep them from pursuing the idols of the land, and we see a cycle and pattern of sorrow and very strict warnings, uh, excuse me, and heartbreak for the people of Israel. And while this is not the most comfortable topic, I know it makes us all uncomfortable, we know that God keeps his covenant by using means. There are things that God uses to help us continue to love him and to stay with him. And one of those means are some of the startling statements in the New Testament involving warnings. And I want to read them to you, uh, just a few of them. Hebrews chapter 10, 26 through 31. For if we, are, if we deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. It's really an uncomfortable statement, don't you think? Anyone who disregarded the law of Moses died without mercy based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God? Who has regarded as profane, as, as not sacred, as nothing, the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? And who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know the one who has said, Vengeance belongs to me. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Friends, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. In regards to church discipline, God has given the local church the authority to remove people from the congregation. Of course, the goal is always restoration, but it is to preserve the faith of the people. 1 Corinthians 5. This, you know, the Corinthian church was a really difficult church to deal with. In fact, he tells the Corinthians that no pastor wants to pastor you. I tried to get Apollos to come, and he said he wasn't really interested. Right? So if, if, if you're that church, you know what it's like to no pastor wants to pastor you. It says in verse 4, When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus... And I am with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus. Hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of judgment. And the day of the Lord, sorry. First Corinthians 5.13, God judges outsiders. It says, remove the evil person from among you. God provides us these warnings. And we must remember these warnings. They should 
drive us to the cross of Christ. And remember our covenantal head, our husband. We do not want to commit adultery by peddling around with false idols and not focusing on the one who belongs. And so for me, I'm going to tell you that, that this is a guardrail. These warnings are guardrails. When I start to, to go, the bumps start happening, and eventually I hit a guardrail, right? And the guardrail is to keep you from going off the cliff. That's what these are. So when the church comes to you and says, listen, you're continuing in sin, you're refusing to repent, we're going to have to ask that you no longer take the Lord's Supper, and now we're going to say that you are no longer a member of our congregation. We're handing you over to Satan. We're going to continue to love you. You're going to be evangelized. We're going to, we're going to worship you. Or not worship you. We're going to encourage you to come to worship the living God. But we cannot let you continue in this way. Right? With my children, it's the same thing. You cannot continue in sin. You're going to be disciplined. It's going to get hard for you. For me, the most powerful motive is the cross of Christ. I don't, I don't know if you have meditated on this before. But if you are struggling with something, the most powerful motive for, to keep me from sinning is the cross of Christ. God the Father poured out judgment, poured out wrath on Jesus, his son. And the wrath for sinful man poured out on the one who was completely innocent. Think about that for a minute. Completely innocent. The spotless lamb of God. Wrath was poured out upon. If you've seen a little lamb, it's hard to imagine someone wanting to hurt that. Jesus went willingly to the cross for me and for his people. The God, the God, God the Father has God the Son now standing at the right hand, interceding for his bride. This one who died for me is standing there saying, mine, mine, whenever temptation approaches. When I repent and believe, this is me becoming in union with Christ, and I'm unified with Christ. And so when God the Father looks at me, he sees God the Son. He doesn't see Matt the sinner. He doesn't see any of you as the sinners that you are. He sees his own dear Son. And not only that, Christ is interceding for us. It says the Spirit intercedes with groans when we have no words to say in our prayers. We can just cry out to Him. The husband that protects us better than any human husband, better than any possible worldly explanation. This is the Son of the living God interceding for you and for me. When He prays, He prays for His people. We hear a lot about that in John, about Him praying. And if that does not encourage you in the day of struggle, then I don't know what will. Joshua paints this picture of faithfulness. Three things I know I must know in order to be faithful. And I hope that you know them as well. Number one, God's people have the assurance of heaven. It is your Lord, your God who fights for you. Two, there's a duty for obedience. Do not play the harlot. Do not commit adultery, but come to the living God. And then finally, there's the warning of certain judgment. In order for me to be faithful, I have to know that the Lord may hand me over for a time to very strict judgment. And that may look different for different people. But how many of you have stiffened your neck, have stiffened your neck and pursued what you wanted to pursue 
and it really blew up in your face. We, uh, we had an experience with a, a, a British Army unit when I was deployed, and we had a checkpoint because there was an IED down the road. An IED is an improvised explosive device, a roadside bomb. And these British folks, they pulled up in these like little Land Rovers. I mean, they were not armored or anything. And they pulled up, and they said, what you, what's your blokes doing? Or however they say British things, right? And, and, and we said, well, we're, we're pulling security here. There's a bomb up here. And they're like, oh, well, our intel says it's all clear. We're just going to go ahead. And we said, no, don't do that. In fact, we drove our vehicles across the road to try to stop them. And we began to beg them, like, no, don't go across the road. They're like, ah, oh, that's okay. Don't worry about it, Yanks. We got, we got this, right? And they went, and they got hit by this IED, and then we had to go and rescue them. We began to patch bodies up because they were so stubborn. They thought that they knew what was right, and they went on their own strength. They did not listen to us. In fact, they started making fun of us, saying we were weak or we were cowards and, and we didn't have anything in us. And they said, well, you guys are just not tough enough. You know, you guys, you just a bunch of Americans. You guys are raised on Gatorade and Skittles, right? And, and all the funny things they said, and they rolled into the bomb. And in this way, sometimes I engage with my friends here, and this is what happens. They make fun of me. They attack me, and they get hit by that IED. And you know who gets to come and, and patch them up? Me. So I'm asking you, I'm begging you, if this is you, if you are pursuing your own ways and your own thoughts and you are stiff-necked, you've hardened your heart against the living God, do not continue down this path, but turn to the living God. Cling to Christ. And I'm happy to help show you the way that I do it, the way the Scripture teaches. And I know the elders would love to talk to you if you have been living in sin, if you have been pursuing your own loves and it has become a disaster for you, come talk to one of the elders because we would like to introduce you to the one who can truly satisfy your soul. And that's Jesus, our living God. As Augie comes and leads us in communion, I want us to remember what the Lord has done through Christ for his bride, the church. No husband has done what Christ has done for his bride. Let's go ahead and close in prayer as Augie comes forward. Father, as we approach your table, we recognize how weak we are, but how magnificent you are, and that we are covered by your blood, that you are the husband that we don't deserve because we have chosen our own ways. We have uh, pursued our own things. All we like sheep have gone astray. And yet you have come, you have, you have gathered us up, and you have made us a people who are not a people. And Lord, we thank you for that, that we can gather with like-minded believers who love the Lord Jesus Christ with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we can lift your name on high in worship. Father, I'm humbled to be your servant here. Lord, I'm so undeserving because you are good. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.